Join the Food and Drink Federation for the FDF Awards at the Royal Lancaster Hotel, February the 4th, 2021. For more details on this prestigious event, visit fdf.org.uk forward slash events. The FDF Awards, February the 4th, 2021. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to this FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. I'm Ian Wright. Uh, I'm the chief executive of the FDF. And joining me today is Alex Smith uh, from Alara, who chairs the FDF's organic group. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Ian. And as you may gather, not only am I passionate about food and drink, I'm passionate specifically about organic food and drink. Uh, very much so. And so let's start by you telling us, where did that passion for organics originate? And how long have you been engaged in the organic world? But my original interest from food really started 47 years ago when I used to live in a squat and for philosophical reasons, really, I lived without using any money at all. I started the business Alara with two pounds I found on the street and started selling thrown away fruit and vegetables from New Covent Garden Market. So we started right from the very beginning, understanding the real value of food and working to ensure that we worked in a completely waste-free way building on the waste that was in the food markets at the time with that commitment really to healthy and sustainable food right from 47 years ago we moved into organic probably 40 years ago and were the very first cereal company anywhere in the world to be certified as organic and back in what 1972 three the mid 70s the concept of organic food wasn't quite as well known as it is now, was it? I mean, it must have been quite a struggle to get recognised, first of all, for the healthy food and the organic food that you were selling, and also to have uh, your potential shoppers and customers understand the benefits. Yes, well, it's still exactly those same problems now to help our consumers understand the benefits and also to have recognition for the value that organic food brings. So although the market's bigger now, the difficulties in understanding those benefits are definitely still present. The time that you established Alara, were there other similar, you said earlier you were the first business to get accredited as organic for cereals. Were there other pioneers of the organic movement working in parallel with you in other sectors, in with other products? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, we were a, sort of a, a small group. I think I'm probably the last one of those now, but you know, companies like Whole Earth, like Infinity, like Rainbow, like Community Foods, we were all pioneers in this area. I, I'm the one with the longevity in this. I think everybody else who was working in this organic field from... 40 years ago has now retired. I say I feel my knees a little bit sometimes, but uh, there there were a whole group of us then. Tell us a bit more about what Alara does, what it sells, and actually also, where does the name Alara come from? The name Alara, I mean, curiously, it was an amalgam of my name and my, the previous or the other founder of the company's name. So my name's Alex and 
the other founder was a lady called Chiara. She was Italian, but Alara is also an Ibu corn god. So a Nigerian tribe have, have a corn god called Alara. And Alara is also a, a acronym for as low as reasonably achievable, which is what we apply to our price structure. So we produce mainly cereals with buying about thousand tons of organic oats a year plus lots of other ingredients we have about 350 ingredients and make 400 different blends of porridges granolas and mueslis we sell them to this country and about 30 export markets across europe to uh, hong kong china and japan australia so and we're fairly well established now. And how many employees do you have? About 60 employees here. And have any of them been on the journey with you since the start? We've got a very good stable group of employees here. So we've got two who have been here for 30 years, one or two who have been here for 20 years, and a lot of them between 10 and 15 years nobody's been here quite as long as I have and the other founder as well moved out from the business about 25 years ago. What sort of size is the organic market in uh, the UK and um, before the Covid and Brexit crises hit was it growing strongly uh, and, and similar question what sort of size was it in Europe? Uh, the whole market is it's growing. I mean, globally, organic's been growing at about 10% a year for about the last two decades. So globally now, it's about 115 billion US dollars. Europe is about 40% of that. US is about 45% of that. And the other 15% is all the other countries. So Europe is the second largest at about... $47 billion. The UK is growing at about 7%, or it was before COVID. Since COVID, the pace has really picked up. I think people are seeing organic food as, a, as an uncontaminated, pure food source. So over the last six months, sales have increased about 12% for organic food. So it's been a, you know, quite a good development in organic food over the last pandemic period. Does the organic movement and do organic suppliers reach into every part of our food supply system? Yes, though I think we're sadly lacking really in public procurement. You know, I think this is one of the areas where it would be great if organic in this country followed the pattern in Europe and in some other countries as well, where the environmental health, biodiversity and climate friendly nature of organic food was recognised by government. So going into public procurement is a, an area that is lacking. But in retail, in a lot of food service, then organic food is really powering ahead at the moment. Is that why, is that wish to sort of see organic food reach further and to begin to have it recognised on the public procurement agenda amongst other key issues, and we'll come to Brexit and COVID in a minute, is that why you uh, returned to take the chair of the FDF? I think for a time dormant 
organic group because you you seem to have been responsible for its reinvigoration over the last 18 months yes i you know i mean certainly it was great that you got behind it in the way you did and i think as there is recognition now of the global size of the organic market and i think recognition of the values that organic has then be able to work with the food and drink federation which is an absolutely key policy driver in the food and drink area is a very key development in my mind for promoting organic food and drink and the values advantages that it has and tell me the the group uh, or tell our listeners the group is is strong and and uh, expanding i know but it, it doesn't just have those from uh, purely organic producers, does it? It also includes some pretty large businesses who have organic products in their portfolio. Yes. You know, I mean, we're not a 100% organic company. You know, probably 70% of our production is organic, but we also do some products you know, gluten-free, for instance, fair trade products. So we're not 100% organic. And a lot of the members of the organic group at FDF are also organic and non-organic. What's good, I think, is that there is a huge amount of new product development in the organic food and drink sector and a growing understanding as well that having large players who can bring their marketing and scale to bear on the market is it is a good thing to have for the sector as a whole. Now, you, you said that the market had grown significantly in the six months since the COVID crisis uh, hit. Can you mm. say a bit more about the issues that COVID has forced uh, or encouraged the sector to, um, to consider? Uh, uh, what have been the advantages of the COVID crisis? And you, you talked about one of them just now. And what, what have you seen as the major drawbacks of the COVID crisis? Well, you know, I mean, the major drawbacks is the tremendous disruption that's happened all through the country. And of course, you know, the deaths and illnesses that it's caused. So it is a you know really terrible, shocking event. But at the same time, if there are, you know, some silver lining somewhere, then I think it's sensible to understand that there are benefits to these sorts of shocks to the system. And I think one of the key benefits could be an appreciation not just of organic food, but food as a whole. We hear every day now how the foundational element of a healthy and stable society is food and making sure that everybody has the food that they need to eat is a key requirement of government when that has been satisfied and i think the appreciation for the amount of work effort and inspiration and hard work that goes in across all of the industry to make sure that everybody in this country is fed has happened then looking at the quality of that food is then the next step, especially when we start considering where we are in terms of soil health and climate, you know, the climate crisis that we're, we're facing when the COVID issues start subsiding, which I'm sure it will as, as we get a, a vaccine for the, you know, to inoculate everybody. I, I'm interested in that question just for a minute before we turn to the grisly prospect of, of our exit from the EU and the disruption that might cause. But just mm. sticking on this idea of 
the more holistic nature of people's attitude to food. I, I'm struck by the fact that Patrick Holden, who was one of the pioneers with you of, of the organic food movement, has, has moved uh, his focus to something you just talked about, to sustainable food. And I'm also struck by what you said earlier about gluten-free and fair trade products. Is it fair to say that, that organic food sort of is beginning to take its place around and amongst a portfolio of different approaches, which might be about gluten-free, allergen-free, other other free-form from products, and with alongside fair trade products and sustainable products, products produced on sustainable soils from sustainable suppliers. Do you think that that's where the future for this movement might lie as as an integral part of a of a wider sustainable food system. One of the things that we will face on the basis that we overcome the COVID situation now, and although COVID is terrible, climate chaos, which I strongly believe is happening, is going to be a much worse thing that we need to, to deal with. So understanding the absolute key role that food plays in this, bearing in mind that food is one third, one third of all climate change gas produced on the planet, and 10% of all climate change gas produced on the planet is nitrous oxide, mainly coming from artificial fertilizers. This is an absolutely key thing that the food industry is going to have to take on board. So it's not just green electricity in factories, it's understanding the actual embedded CO2E of all of the food that's being sold. So how organic food plays into this larger concern, I think is a key thing. And looking at how organic soils can sequester carbon rather than emitting it, how the no how there's no need for artificial fertilizers in organic food again is a key advantage of organic food. And I think that organic food as well differs from these other, you know, fair trade and gluten free. And it differs in a very fundamental way that people forget. Organic food is the only food supply chain which the methods of production and the food themselves are actually mandated for under, well, it's more or less global laws now. So it is produced under legal requirements specified in, in law, which these other supply chains aren't. What that means is, is that there is real integrity, I believe, in organic food supply chains, which can be lacking in others. And presumably the link to climate change, uh, although it's obviously an extremely serious concern, and, and I'm struck by your uh, suggestion that the chaos will continue in some form and that this is in some ways a rehearsal, this period is a rehearsal for climate change. But um, I'm, I'm also struck by the opportunity that that creates for organic food, because if that chaos continues and continues to focus consumers' minds on the issues, then organic food is presumably very well placed to 
at least take advantage of that opportunity? Yes, well, you know, I've got to admit, I think it's more than just taking advantage of. I think that, as I said, food absolutely has to be at the forefront of this move to a sustainable future. You know, we don't really, it's not a question of are we going to be sustainable or not. Society will, without question, be sustainable. You know, it's tautological. The only question is what form society will be in when it becomes sustainable. And there's a you know, real amazing opportunity for us to move from where we are now to a sustainable future that's going, you know, it's an amazing place. It's not, you know, sackcloth and ashes. It's the next, in my view, iteration of societal development. So yeah, I, I think it's a, you know, a, a tremendous place to go and because not only does food touch everybody on the planet every day but also because it's such a large climate chaos contributor the role of food in that transition to my mind is an absolutely key thing that everybody really involved in food and drink needs to embrace and make the most of on the way to that bright future that you've just painted the, the, the one obstacle that we haven't talked about yet and we'll just cover in our last five or six minutes is the one that's most immediate in many ways which is coming at us in fewer than 70 days now and that's the uh, UK's uh, exit from the transition period and its ultimate uh, freeing of itself from the EU now that poses a whole series of potential problems for the organic food industry, doesn't it? Well, already we're facing up to problems, not just potential problems, but problems already because of Brexit. We've had to relabel all of our products and redo all of the artwork on our products to ensure we've got a European address on them. So just that basic requirement we've already had to take part in, which is onerous enough. But right now, anybody exporting food and drink to Europe will have to get um, organic equivalents. And so far, there isn't any organic equivalents between the UK and the EU. What that means is that if this isn't forthcoming on the 1st of January, it will be illegal for us and impossible for us to export any of the organic food to any of the markets in Europe that we've built up over the last 30 years. Um, it's just going to be completely devastating for our business. About 15% of our organic sales go into Europe. So just losing all of these, just at a stroke of a pen or on the stroke of midnight, more or less you know, makes me feel a bit like we're a Cinderella industry here. We're just going to lose all of this just at the stroke of midnight. I certainly hope that one way or another that equivalence is going to be forthcoming and this work and you know, key development in food and drink to my mind in this country is going to get supported by that export potential into Europe which their farm to fork policy is absolutely recognising as a key element of their food and drink strategy over the next 10 years. If uh, organics is the Cinderella, then presumably Michel Barnier and David Frost are the ugly sisters. Um, I know you were part of a group that wrote to Lord Frost, as we must now call him, and got a really um, positive, if not necessarily very hopeful, reply. 
can you just say a bit about what's going on to try and um, uh, to try and secure the future for organic food with the UK government and others? The FDF has been very supportive in this, using FDF officers we have written to Lord Frost, putting this case and also into DEFRA and BIS as well. So at the same time, there really hasn't been very much movement. You know, and organic does tend, or has up to now, I think, been forgotten to some degree. For instance, there was a, you know, a recent trade deal with Japan and organic was forgotten from the food and drink section of that for quite some time. So to have Food and Drink Federation now working in on behalf of this sector is a you know a very appreciated development. And to think that organic food won't get forgotten about like it has in the past. So this push by FDF and others working with it is is very welcome and I hope it's going to have some effect. But at the same time, the certifiers here have applied for the correct documentation from Europe to allow that extension of the certification process. So that is the other route by which we can hope to continue our exports to Europe. At the same time, there does seem to be apocryphal stories that this approval of EU of UK certifiers sending stuff into Europe is being held back on the grounds that there isn't a deal agreed yet between the UK and Europe. So, you know, it is terribly tender hooks and certainly our customers in Europe are really asking us what's happening and how this is all going to affect things. But it's a, a very uncertain, shaky period at the moment and one where we have already lost business in Europe. One of our customers in Belgium, quite a good customer, said, look, we really need to look at how we get supplied and unfortunately there's too much uncertainty for you so they've moved their business elsewhere which you know it's a pity yes and i think i think that kind of typifies many sectors in our economy in our food economy as well in terms of the kind of level of uncertainty that um, that many of many FDF members across the piece feel. And what are your? I mean, you're optimistic about the um, uh, about the future of organics, as you said earlier. Uh, are you? Uh, do you see that as something that is timeless in terms of the generations, or are there? Uh, is there a particular generation which is linked to this? Is is it something that? the current sort of generation X has a huge, in which it has a huge interest. Is that something that you find from your uh, customers? Yes, and we're seeing really, I think that the more you know about organic food, the more you're likely to, you know, to buy it and to eat it. So those who have an interest, for instance, you know, in climate chaos, those who are going to have to live with consequences are those who are most interested in doing what they can to ameliorate the situation. So, you know, it's the idea of, you know, live the change you want to see. So if you want healthy food, you want to be healthy yourself, in my view, and you want a healthy planet, then looking at healthy food to eat is a very sensible first step. So those 
who have an interest in being healthy and in a healthy planet are those most likely to be eating organic food. Healthy food, healthy planet. Alex, we're almost at the end of our time. I just want to ask you one last question. And I'm struck by the link between the lateness of the hour in terms of Brexit. I often say to people when I'm talking about regulatory uh, confirmation and, and changes to the way things are done between the UK and the EU and the UK and GB in Northern Ireland that really now in very late October, early November, it's too late, baby, oh, it's too late for people to adapt, for businesses to adapt. But I've just thought that, uh, and, and this is um, my traditional cultural link for this particular podcast, Carol King was writing his Too Late Baby in the very early 70s at the same time as you were in that squat, which gave birth to Alara. If you could go and talk to um, the Alex Smith of the early 70s in that squat, do you think that he would be surprised uh, by the success of Alara and the organic food movement? Would it, be, would it have been something he dreamed of? Or was it something that he expected that with dedication and persistence might be accomplished? To be honest, it was, I mean, starting in that squat, there wasn't really any big dream of where it could go to. It was what seemed appropriate to do at the time. What I've been very lucky, really, in my life is I feel like I haven't really had to compromise at all in what I've been doing. I was proud of what I did then, you know, to take throwing away fruit and vegetables and make sure that it continued to have a life. And I'm proud of what I do now. You know, it's it's not just the organic food, but the way that we're embedded in the community here, and the way that we're able to have some outreach for what we believe. So it's a, you know, both the food and the ability to articulate that belief and to make a small difference is something that I know the Alex then was keen to do. You know, it's why I used to live without using money. And it's something that I feel very blessed to be able to continue to do now. Alex, it's been a fascinating half hour. Thank you so much for giving us your time, for telling us the very inspiring, actually, inspiring story of both Alara and of organic food and of Alex Smith himself. That's all we've got time for today. We will, in some of these podcasts, look at some of the other groups that uh, FDF has in its membership. And we'll be talking to the movers and shakers from those groups in future podcasts. But for the moment, from Alex and from me, it's goodbye. And thank you for listening. And remember, you can hear the FDF podcast, Passionate About Food and Drink, wherever you pick up your podcasts regularly. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.